Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. I'm Jesse Thorne. Sometimes being a star takes work. I mean, it always takes work, but there's a good number of actors and artists out there who have to work really hard at it, and they never realize they can actually become the thing they dreamed of until, you know, until they've already become that thing. Then there's performers like Megan Mullally. She said she was born, yes, literally born, to be in show business. I kind of get the impression that you committed to being an entertainer at the age of like one and a half Mm -hmm. and never relented. One and a half days in my mother's (laughs) womb. (laughs) Yeah, no, there was no other. I, you know, I've said it before and I'll say it again. I came out of the womb in a top hat and tap shoes. It's bullseye. Coming up, Megan Mullally. Among a bunch of other things on her resume, she plays Karen on Will and Grace. You know, the drunk socialite with the high-pitched, slightly grating voice? She gets a lot of work these days, and she says that's in part thanks to taking an approach to roles that's, I guess you could call, less risky? I think what happened was I used to take really big chances in auditions, and I used to go in with really weird characters. And... Sometimes I would get the job, and sometimes they would call the police. Then you'll hear from Tracy Ellis Ross. She is a fascinating, hilarious actor. She's the star of the hit ABC sitcom Blackish. She's also so many other things a feminist activist, a friend of Michelle Obama, and also her mom is Diana Ross. Diana Ross! She's a really good waker upper. She's a particularly good waker upper. She would, she's the most gentle. Like, she would first come in and lift the, like, open the shades. And me and my sisters all shared a room. She would open the shades. And then she would gently turn on some music. And then she would come back again five minutes later. And she would lean in the door and say, in that beautiful voice of my mom's, Are you going to wake up, girls? Finally, for the outshot, I'll tell you about possibly the most charming and outlandish woman of the 20th century. That's all coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Megan Mullally is one of those actors who just kind of radiates confidence and poise. And in the nearly 100 roles she's had on film and in television, that's made her stand out. I guess that kind of makes her a character actress. A lot of the time she plays people with huge personalities. She is absolutely one of the best in the world at that. Like, maybe you're a fan of Parks and Recreation. She played Tammy, the ex-wife of Ron Swanson a menacing, insane, toxic seductress. Ron is played by Nick Offerman, by the way, who in real life is Megan's husband. I admit there was a time when that sort of behavior would have driven me wild. But I am in a healthy relationship now, Tammy. A relationship? With whom? A lovely, intelligent, self-possessed pediatric surgeon named Wendy. Sounds like a real whore. She also has some unforgettable credits on shows like Bob's Burgers, Children's Hospital, and even a few episodes of 30 Rock. But she's probably best known for her role on the groundbreaking sitcom Will and Grace. She plays Karen Walker, a kind of deranged, sociopathic, hyper-judgmental socialite who works for Grace on the show. 
Welcome to the Metropolitan Museum of Art for the Stanley Walker Foundation benefit. Oh, Stanley loved ancient Egyptian culture. They invented the pyramid, which later became the Pyramid Scheme. <laughs> During its original run between 1998 and 2006, the show earned 16 Emmy Awards and over 80 nominations. Last year, the show returned for a ninth season and... To your delight and mine, they still got it. It's funny, it's weird, it's touching at times, too. Megan, who's already won two Emmys for her role as Karen, is now up for her third award in the Supporting Actress category. Let's hear a little bit from the latest season. In this scene, Karen is in the bedroom of a fancy country club. She's on the phone with reception. She found a morphine drip in the room and mistook it for a gift. It turns out that the room she booked was already occupied by a fellow socialite and frenemy, Beverly Leslie. Beverly, played by Leslie Jordan, is an elderly, somewhat flamboyant Southern gentleman. Hello, this is Mrs. Walker in 705. Who do I have to thank for this lovely morphine drip in my room? What? I'm not recovering from plastic surgery. I've never had anything done in my life in the United States. <laughs> what do you mean someone else booked the room? I pay a lot of money to belong to this country club, and I booked this hospitality suite months ago. I'd like to see who has balls big enough to ask me to move. Well, well, well. <laughs> must have died during surgery because the devil herself is before me. Why, Beverly Leslie, I thought they'd torn down all the corroded old Confederate statues. <laughs> Megan Mullally, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. Oh, thanks for having me. You know, when I was prepping for this interview, I watched a little bit of you doing Karen from the very beginning of the show. Mm -hmm. And the Karen voice was much less ridiculous. Yeah, totally different. How did it become that? Like, were you? was it always a scheme of yours to get to the point where you were doing something completely ridiculous rather than slightly ridiculous? I think, like, subconsciously it was. But I think what happened was I used to take really big chances in auditions. And I used to go in with really weird characters. And sometimes I would get the job and sometimes they would call the police. <laughs> so it was about a 50-50. <laughs> so... Um, when I auditioned for Will and Grace, for that character, I thought, yeah, I'm not going to do anything too crazy because, you know, I won't get the job. And so in the pilot, I thought the only problem was, I guess, it, so it was mildly subconscious to the extent that my n normal speaking voice is very laconic and the tone of the show is very farcical and fast paced. So it didn't really fit. So um, over the course of the first, I'd say, like 10 episodes, my voice just gets higher and higher and higher. And then suddenly um, I seemed like I was in a farce. <laughs> <laughs> but then, you know, that's that's my in, – because I'm an instinctual, you know, performer. I don't really like – I'm not as super analytical. But then analytically uh, it makes sense because – you know, the character is the most judgmental person on the planet and nothing that anyone says or does or wears is good enough for her. But then she has this quality that's inescapable 
her voice, um, which is the most irritating thing <laughs> in the world. <laughs> you auditioned for Grace first, right? Yeah, I did. I went in and auditioned for Grace, and they were like, Next. <laughs> did you make a big? I mean, were you, did you make a ridiculous choice when you were? No, I just no. Uh, uh-uh. I went in and I just it was written very real, so I just tried to be real, and they kind of flatlined. And then I went home and forgot all about it. And two weeks later, my agent called and said they want you to audition for this pilot called Will and Grace. And I said I already went in on that, and she was like, "No, it's for a different part." And I said there wasn't another part, and she said, "I'm going to send you the script again." So she sent me the script, and I read it, and I was like, oh, yeah, there's that secretary. And then that show, Sybil had had recently been on, because this was 1998, with Chris, uh, Sybil Shepard and Christine Baranski, who played her rich, you smart-talking. know, smart-talking sidekick. And I thought, well, I can't. And was spectacularly And it's Christine Baranski, so yeah. you can't beat that, right? So I thought, well, I can't do it better than Christine Bransky did it. And then I thought, well, maybe I can make her weird. So I kind of thought of some ways to make her sort of quirkier and weirder. So that's what I, that's how I auditioned. I didn't have the voice, but I did have some weird. She was just a little weirder. Sometimes I feel like people who can make big clear acting choices right away, it's because they are brave, uh, like they have like almost a foolhardy courage to make a big choice, because it's scary to make a big choice that's far from yourself. Then other times I wonder, and I wonder if this is true of you, if part of it is actually self-protective, that by making a choice that is really big, if you do not get a part... They didn't like your giant choice, not that they mm-hmm. didn't like you. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. I, I think uh, from in my uh, situation, it's like I might there might be a brain disorder involved because <laughs> for me, <laughs> for me, it's like when I first read my initial response to the material, I always have a take on it, and then I can't shake it. So I'm sort of I'm sort of screwed in a way because. Whatever my first reaction to the material is, I have a hard time um, – like if I have one of those initial reactions and I go into an audition, they're like, yeah, can you do it like totally differently? I have a little bit of a hard time shifting gears because I innately feel that my choice is absolutely the right one. <laughs> so, yeah, there might be a, a slight <laughs> mental disorder involved. Um, where were you at in your career when you got the part of Karen? Well, shortly before I auditioned for Will and Grace, I was in the basement parking garage of a Bed Bath & Beyond on a payphone with my agent at the time telling him that I would no longer be auditioning for sitcoms, that I had obviously – it, I had played it out. I had reached my limit. It wasn't panning out. I mean, I, I'd, I'd done a pilot every year for many years, and they either didn't go or they went for seven episodes or 13 episodes, and then that was it. And I said, look, clearly this wasn't meant to be. And he was like, I think it is meant to be, and I think you're wrong. And I was like, okay, well, agree to disagree, but I'm not auditioning for any more pilots. And then... 
I didn't have enough money to pay my rent. And I said, hey, can I get some pilot auditions for sitcoms? So that's when I auditioned for Will and Grace. I kind of get the impression that you committed to being an entertainer at the age of like one and a half. Mm Mm-hmm. And never relented. One and a half days in my mother's <laughs> womb. <laughs> yeah, no, there was no other. I, uh, you know, I've said it before and I'll say it again. That I came out of the womb in a top hat and tap shoes. <laughs> and it's just true. I just, it was, that was it. And, you know. Your first word was, watcha. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, I was very showbiz from the switch, and um, but your your I was an family, only child. but your family had you had been, you you were born in Los Angeles and moved to Oklahoma City, and your father had been an actor in Los Angeles, and moving mm-hmm. to Oklahoma City must have been a, in some way a rejection of show business. Yeah, you don't move to Oklahoma City to renew your contract with show business. No, my father was done with. He thought he was done, but then he never could stop trying. But, yeah, no, I wasn't too happy about it. Trust me. I mean, we moved to Oklahoma City on my sixth birthday, and I was like, "Mm, what's up, parents? (laughs) (laughs) What are you guys thinking? Tell me. uh, Lay out your thoughts behind this this weird (laughs) plan. But um, then it turned out to be a really great place to grow up. Um, people in Oklahoma City are really, really nice, very, you know, kind, generous, neighborly types of people. Um, not everybody. I mean, they're just like everywhere else. But um, for the most part, very nice. And so um, I was. that was a good place to grow up. But my father was not – as a matter of fact, I think when I announced that I would like to be an actor – how, how old were you? Well, I mean, I think the cat was way out of the bag already. But I think when I verbalized it, I was about seven or eight. He said, oh, no, 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 no. That's I don't I do not want, you know, you to that's a terrible it's a very hard business. I don't want you to to do that. I don't want and he said to my mom, I don't want her doing that. And this coming from a man who I heard literally wore an ascot around Oklahoma City. No, it's insane. He, it's, a city it's, with a relatively a, small ascot community. It's a crazy miracle that he wasn't murdered because he not only wore an ascot, but he also at one point when I was in second grade purchased a Rolls-Royce Phantom Three, uh, silver, gray, and drove that around town wearing his ascot. And the fact that some kicker on the back of a pickup truck didn't just take him out is – Really fortunate. Were you self-aware about how unusual that part of your family was when you were I, 10 years old or I whatever? I knew that my father was different from the other parents because he was very, very eccentric and flamboyant. And his humor was extremely um, dark and weird and he would really commit to a joke like nobody's business like he would you know just a minor example is he would pretend that he was having a massive heart attack and then he would fall over you know dead in his plate of spaghetti at the dinner table and my mom and, and I at first were like is he 
dead? And then after a while, we were like, all right, get out of the spaghetti. And um, then, like, another thing you would do routinely from the time I was in, like, second, third grade. Um, <clears throat> in third grade, I took the bus. And so I came home one day, and my mom wasn't home. And um, being alone with my father was not my preference because he was terrifying. So... Uh, I first thing I said when I walked in the door was I said, um, where's mommy? And he said, because he, he, he had this vocal affectation that he, he did. He did a lot of accents around the house, but he also had this grandiose um, persona. And he said, my darling, I'm sorry to tell you, but your mother is dead. And I, for just a second, I was like, whoa. This is not good news. And then he was like, and he kept going. He was like, you're just going to have to live the rest of your life without a mother. And then I finally was like, okay, where is she really, though? And he was like, the grocery store. So um, I had a therapist tell me one time that uh, like the thing that I had to provide for my children, if I was going to provide one thing to my children— was just a sense that their family and their home were their home. Mm -hmm. That whatever happened in the world, no matter what, they had security in our family. Even if they did, even if they went out and murdered someone mm -hmm. or whatever, um, or someone tried to murder them, they could always. That's amazing. That's really, really good advice. Yeah. See, I had the opposite. The thing I didn't realize about my father. I knew that he was like his personality was different because my friends would say your father is really weird or like I don't I'm af I'm afraid of your father or I don't like being around your father. Um, but I what I didn't understand was that my father was like a huge like ginormous alcoholic um, and incredibly emotionally and verbally abusive <laughs> and um, and also that he. Uh, was a well, I knew he was a womanizer um, because my mom would kind of, you know, use me as her um, co-conspirator to try to get to the bottom of certain, you know, flings that he was having. But <clears throat> the thing that I didn't realize is that everybody's household wasn't like that. Like I thought everybody was terrified to go home after school. I just thought everybody was. I, and I never talked about it. I never mentioned it. I never said anything to anybody. I've never spoken about it publicly until very recently, like within the last year or so. But, yeah, it was a thing. And I, I guess I just didn't um, know that I was uh, out of the ordinary. And it really wasn't even until the last – because I have friends that I've known since first grade since I went to that school where you go for the whole time. And it wasn't until the last, you know, 10 years or so even that I said to them, like, did you know that my dad was like this? And, uh, yeah, I, I kept a lot in. I don't know why I did. I guess because I, I couldn't do anything wrong or I would – like something terrible would happen. So I just tried to never do anything wrong. So I guess I never talked about my dad even though he died in 1992. I never talked about him. Because I thought I'd get in trouble. We'll finish up my interview with Megan Mullally after a break. She'll tell me about the time she sang the theme song from Green Acres on stage at the Emmys. 
with our nation's president, Donald Trump. Life is strange sometimes. Also, still to come, Tracy Ellis Ross from Blackish. Don't miss it. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for this podcast and the following message come from ZipRecruiter. Hiring is challenging, but ZipRecruiter can make it simple, smart, and fast. ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 job boards with one click. Then it scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invites them to apply for your job. Try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash bullseye. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Hey, this is Stretch Armstrong. And this is Bobby Garcia, the hosts of What's Good. We're back with a brand new season. We've got Erica Badu, Lenny Kravitz, Black Thought, and more. You'll hear B-side stories from A-list guests. Subscribe now. Hey, have you checked out the Max Fun Store recently? We've got a bunch of cool new stuff. For Bubble, we've got a t-shirt, buttons, and more. Reading Glasses fans will love their new library book-inspired shirt. And if you're a fan of beef, check back Friday for the debut of our Beef and Dairy Network merch. We've got all that and more from a ton of Max Fun shows you love. So go check out what we've got and buy yourself something fun at maxfunstore.com. Welcome back to Bullseye. My guest is Megan Mullally. You've seen her in Parks and Recreation, in Children's Hospital, a bunch of other things. She also stars on Will and Grace, where she plays Karen Walker. Earlier this year, the show wrapped up its first new season in over a decade. And just last month, Will and Grace earned a handful of fresh Emmy nominations. Megan is up for her third Best Supporting Actress award. Here's a classic bit from Will and Grace's fifth season. Megan's character, Karen, an eccentric, kind of -of out-of-touch socialite, decides she needs to be more relatable, so she gets a roommate, a woman named Liz, who is played by Madonna. Apparently, when Madonna agreed to appear on Will and Grace, she said she would only do scenes with Karen. True story. Anyway, the roommate situation starts off great until they both fall for the same guy. And in this clip, we're about to hear... Things have just gone south. You mean you're going to end our friendship over some man in Dockers with Red Bull breath? I could have loved him. I want you to write me a check for the rest of the month's rent and get out. You know, I just wanted to try a new experience. Make it out to the landlord, Walker Property Management. Oh, and add on a dollar nine. You ate one of my yogurts. Let's see. How do I break this to you? True or false? I own this building. Huh? True. <laughs> yeah, I am Walker Property Management, and I think I want you out. Wait a minute. We're, we're roommates. We're friends. We could be lovers. I'll take that French now. <laughs> Boredom. You've left me no choice. That's right. Cut to you living in a dumpster. <laughs> I know for me, like a big thing about thinking about my own parents was recognizing that it was okay for me to have had my own experience and that the fact that it, the problems in my relationship with my parents were not me like saying they were fundamentally evil human beings or whatever because of my own wish to 
avoid conflict with them. Mm-hmm. But that it was okay for me to have had this experience that said these th- that changed me and affected me in these ways, irrespective of whether it was something fundamental about who my parents were. It was something fundamental about who I was. Yeah, right. So, yeah, I mean, that's your experience. And so it is what it is. And I, uh, whatever happened, um, I want to tell you about my conversation with my mom, but also I just want to say that whatever happened with my, uh, in my upbringing and with my dad, my my father, um, I feel like I've transcended that now. You know, I feel like now that, is behind me. I don't. That doesn't inform my day to day existence. And um, you know, I feel bad. I feel bad that my father and a lot of people in my whole father's family had a lot of problems and were unhappy. And there was seemed to be like a a pattern with the especially the men my father's side. And I feel bad. I feel sorry that that happened. And a lot of that was a product of the time and the culture. It's kind of like a madman thing where it's like you have affairs and you drink a lot. And But then there was a little bit extra element added to my, my father. But anyway, I'm, I'm, I feel that I've uh, – I've stopped the bloodline, <laughs> and I, I personally have transcended those those things for my own personal day to day life, uh, which is great. Um, but back to when when I spoke to my mom, um, it was so incredibly poignant because it started the whole thing started because I I was at visiting my mom in Oklahoma City. I try to get there like four times a year. And I was standing by her bedside because she has 24-hour care in her home and um, paid for by Will and Grace. (laughs) And (laughs) I was standing by her bedside and I said, Mom, guess what? Nick's coming in tonight. And she goes, oh, Nick is such a good man. Your father was a bad man. And I don't know why, but in that moment, it's not the first time she'd ever said something like that or the, you know, 20th. But for some reason in that moment, it just all hit me like a ton of bricks. And that was when the whole like thinking like, well, was he a narcissist or was he something else or this or that? That's when that started. And it set me on this path of talking to my uncle who is the last living sibling of my father's and talking to other people who knew my father and this and that. And I spoke to my mom, of course, and she said, you know – he wasn't a good man. I just, I loved him. I said, well, why didn't you ever leave him? She said, I, I loved him. I always thought I could change him and that I thought, well, tomorrow is going to be different and he's going to, because he wasn't like that at the beginning. And so she was all, he was great at the beginning. He lured her in. She's the perfect one because she's so, loving and kind and open and positive, totally positive mental attitude, um, to coin a phrase. And um, so she's the perfect person for someone like that. And then he was so good to her at the beginning that she spent 27 years of marriage trying to recapture that. She was like, well, I know he can be like this because he was once before. And then he would like push it to the very brink and then he would be really amazing again and very Svengali-like and get her back. And then he'd go back to being horrible. Then they divorced and then he never – 
he never really left her. Um, he came over to her house every single afternoon, and she would make him lunch, and he would hang out sometimes through dinner and into the evening. Did you think about his career when you were going through your career? Um, Because he must have been a... a This is probably none of the stuff you're planning to talk about, right? (laughs) You know. This has gone down a very very interesting, different road. You hunt where there's deer. Comedy. You know, I... No, I didn't think about his career. I thought about my own, just trying to hone my own talents and um, develop my skills, you know, like to the as best I could. But I will say that when I first moved to Los Angeles, I moved here in 1985. I was 26 years old, and um, I was here for a very short time. And the first television show that I auditioned for was a show called The Ellen Burstyn Show, starring none other than Ellen Burstyn. And I was say, Carol Burnett. Okay. <laughs> starring Carol Burnett. And uh, so Ellen Burstyn played my mother, and Elaine Stritch played my grandmother. And um, we shot 13 episodes of that in New York. And anyway, came back to to Los Angeles and my father called and announced to me that he would be moving to Los Angeles and I needed to get him an agent. And I said, um, okay. <laughs> you know, I said, okay. I didn't have the the balls to say no or, you know, get your own agent or don't move here or, you know, I'm not your, I don't know. I just was confused and I was trying to help and be do, uh, total people pleaser, you know. So he did. He moved out. He got an apartment a block away from my apartment and I was with ICM, that agency at the time. And he had a crazy headshot that wasn't cute and he was... <laughs> You know, 60 years old-ish, somewhere in there. And he didn't have any credits of note. And I took it to ICM, and they were like, we can't, I mean, we can't really do a lot with your dad. He doesn't really, he doesn't have a reel, or he doesn't have anything on film. He doesn't have credits, really. He's, He's like a kind of a hard type to cast. And I said, okay. And they said, but how about the voiceover department? So the voiceover department at ICM actually took him on. And so he did have some voiceover auditions. And that was it. And then after about a year, he became very – he packed up and moved back to Oklahoma City in a huff saying he would never set foot in California again. And he didn't. You know, at the time, nobody said – like, nobody said anything to me, but, like, after the fact, I know people have said, like, I just couldn't believe it when your father moved out to Los Angeles and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, well, why didn't you say that to me? <laughs> like, nobody said anything. Like, I was just out there, like, trying to get my dad into show business. I mean, it's kind of an only child thing to not have any, like, to not even think to run it by somebody, somebody else because you're just... I feel yeah. like people with siblings, they're well, used to having like a a, a, co- a special coven that they encircle whenever there's a question in their lives, especially a family question. Yeah. I just – I didn't have that and nobody's, nobody ever said – and my mom for whatever reason 
I'm sure my mom was fit to be tied about it. I'm sure she was furious about it, but she didn't say that to him or me because of, you know, the way things were. Because, you know, you didn't want to incur his wrath. So, you know, that was a a cute year. (laughs) Um, And now work in comedy. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like that should be the tag on half of the serious things said on this program. (laughs) I know. It's so true. It's like every comedian has the same exact story, right? Don't we all have the exact same story? I just never told mine until... Like I'm sitting here with you. So there's a first time for everything. Um, I believe in my heart that there are performers who just have a gift that they had to share. Yeah. But mostly there's something going on if your goal is to get people you don't know to like you. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, right. Right. I don't mean I don't even ever think about that, honestly. I know that that's a that's a common commonly thought. Um, but I never think about that. I want people to like me in real life, but in prof- but professionally, I just I'm more of a I'm more of a I'm like a punk, you know. Like I have a very punk attitude about it. Like I'll do, I'll do anything if I feel like it's the funniest thing to do or the saddest thing to do or the most right thing to do. I'll just I'll do anything. If I feel like that's the right thing. If somebody gives me a direction that I don't agree with, I can be reluctant. I'll be like, I don't know. That doesn't feel right to me. But then, you know, I'm a team player, so, you know, I can take direction. But um, I just have... <laughs> I just have for, for the at-home listener, we got yeah, a facial expression those, that means... <laughs> yeah, for all those uh, people who might potentially be thinking of hiring me for something, <laughs> sure, I can take direction. What do you mean? <laughs> Where'd you get the idea that I couldn't? But I don't know. I always have such a strong idea about something, and um, sometimes my ideas are a little radical, and I just want to do that. I want to do something radical and weird, like my band, Nancy and Beth, which is sort of my favorite thing in the world. It's very, it's, it's very radical in its own extremely entertaining way. This new season of Will and Grace was like more than a decade after the last season mm-hmm. of Will and Grace. Yeah. Did you know when the possibility of it happening coming up, that it was a good idea to do it? Well, I don't... I guess this is as good a time as as any to reveal that I'm a famous psychic, but um, (laughs) (laughs) when we... When we first got the script for the Vote Honey video, the YouTube video that started the whole thing, the election video, um, we got that script that Max and uh, the creators of our show, Max Munchik and David Cohen, had written. I read it. I was laughing and crying. I put it down, picked up my phone. I texted Max and I said, why can't we just do the show again? And he texted right back, we can and, of course, neither of us knew what we were talking about. We are just blowing it out of our b-holes. But um, I just had this overpowering instinct that we could literally bring the entire show back to television, right back where we left it. It's I funny just knew. Like, when I hear people who work on the show – talk about the show, whether it's the creators or the cast members or, or writers or whomever, 
I see the you know the question comes up like how is it different? And you know there are things that are different about it. It's set in the contemporary world, mm-hmm. and that's eleven or twelve years after the last ones were set. Mm-hmm. But basically, everybody seems to just say no. It's the, yeah, we're doing our, the show that we do. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's almost all the same people, too. So, it, I mean, Jim Burroughs has directed every single episode. We're now into the 200 and somewhere around 220 or something like that. We have the same department heads, same camera guys. It's almost all the same. It's like 70 to 75 percent the same people. The key is, of course, the writing. And the writing is so good. And we have... I think we have right now seven or eight of our original writers, like our best, 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 the best of the best. And, I mean, I think the second season is really coming along nicely. We've already shot three three to four episodes, depending on how you count it. Um, and I think it's really solid. I think it's going to be really good. Can I ask you, you did a bit with – Donald Trump, the who is the president of the United States now. Mm, I'm familiar. At the time he was a television star, mm-hmm. um, and I mean, I, I, I don't know how you feel about that experience, but I am going to play a little bit of it. Oh, okay, great. Yeah. <laughs> this is the Emmys, like ten or twelve years ago. So 2004, I think. Six. Was it? 2006. Keep Manhattan. Just give me that countryside. I mean, you're you're selling it there, Megan. I loved it. Um, okay, a lot of funny, uh, hilarious aspects to that little story. First of all. They did a thing on the Emmys called Emmy Idol because this was at the height of American Idol's popularity. So they were going to do a little thing where they would have well-known people come on and perform theme songs from various golden age television shows, right? And then people would literally call in and vote on a winner. And then people would vote in real time, which was at – for that time, you you say it was 2006. For that time, that was quite progressive. So – Normally, even before my agent could finish the sentence, they want you to do this weird thing on the Emmys, I'd be like, no. But they said, they got through the sentence, which was, they want you to do the theme song to Green Acres as Karen with Donald Trump. And I was like, I will be doing that. (laughs) Because there's nothing, be, there's nothing weirder that you could do on network television. Yeah, I will definitely be doing that for that exact reason. Of course, at the time, no one would have ever, at least I would never have ever in a billion years have guessed that he, I didn't know he ever had political aspirations. I mean, now I know, but I didn't know then. He was just this funny, he was a caricature. Of himself. He was this person hosting it. That was when The Apprentice was super popular. Everybody was watching it and everybody was going around saying, You're fired and doing their finger. And, you know, everybody was doing it. And I thought, Well, certainly this guy is playing kind of a character on The Apprentice. He's not really like that in real life. He's like 
exaggerating his personality for to make some good television. But no, turns out in real life he was exactly like that. And I thought, oh, that's even better. That's really funny. So I sprained my ankle the night before, um, like dancing to a commercial jingle on television, trying to entertain Nick by doing a stupid dance. I sprained my ankle. <laughs> so when we got out there, they had to like I, – I came out on crutches in the commercial and then I was just like – if you watch, I'm balancing on one foot for the entire song. Um, and then at the end, he started to leave and he forgot that I couldn't walk. So he come, he came back and he picked me up like a sack of potatoes under his arm. Like literally under his arm, like a, and carried me off stage. It's very gallant. And backstage, he introduced me to Melania, his wife, the most beautiful woman in the world. That's how she was introduced to me. There's not a lot you can say <laughs> to that. You can just be like, congratulations. I mean, to you look each of you. Really pretty. Yeah. So. Then um, I was in my Will and Grace dressing room like the next day and the phone rang and it was Donald Trump. And he said, uh, listen, oh, it was a competition, Emmy Idol, and we won. OK, we got the most votes. So Congratulations. Said, Thanks. Thank you. <laughs> he said, uh, listen, we really needed to win that thing and we did. And you were a big part of that, and I just wanted to say that we won. And not only do we win, but it was a landslide. I hear he said, "I hear it was a landslide. We killed them. Nobody else was even close. And so I'm just calling to say that we really needed to win it, and we did. And that was Emmy Idol. <laughs> Megan Mullally, I'm so grateful to you for taking all this time to come and be on Pulseye. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me. It's been a real... A lot happened. (laughs) (laughs) The really went down. (laughs) Megan Mullally. She was just nominated for the Best Supporting Actress in a Comedy Series Emmy. The winner will be announced next month. If you haven't seen the new season of Will & Grace, you gotta. It's free to stream on NBC's website right now. And also, we didn't get to talk about this in the interview, but did you know that Megan was in Risky Business? The character was named Call Girl. It's a bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Next up, another Emmy nominee... Tracy Ellis Ross. Tracy was born in Los Angeles to music executive Bob Ellis and singer Diana Ross. Yes, that Diana Ross. But unlike her mom, she found her passion in acting. For a while, she worked in indie films and made-for-TV movies, but in 2000, she broke through on the sitcom Girlfriends. She starred as Joan Clayton. It ran for eight smash hit seasons on UPN and The CW. In 2014, she took on a role in a new series— ABC's Blackish. Starring alongside Anthony Anderson, Tracy plays Dr. Rainbow Johnson, an anesthesiologist who's married to Andre, Anderson's character. The show focuses on Dre and Bo, as they are called. 
They're settled down in the suburbs. They've started a family. And as the kids grow up and the family settles in, Dre and Bo realize the life their kids are leading is very different from the one that they knew as kids. The show touches on race, class, politics. And at the same time, it's very sweet, very funny, and very sincere. The show has earned Tracy a Golden Globe Award for Best Actress. Now she's up for the same honor at this year's Emmys. For Bullseye, she talked with Karen Tonkson, who's a panelist and sometime host of Pop Rocket, our sister show here at Maximum Fun. Karen is also a professor of English and Gender Studies at USC, the University of Southern California, and, as you're about to hear, a huge Blackish fan. Here's a bit from the most recent season of Blackish. This comes from an episode Tracy not only starred in, but also directed. In this scene, she and her husband are in couples therapy. Okay, well, you didn't say anything about the balloons or the streamers or the great idea I had to get him a smash cake, which he had a ball with, which you would have never thought of. Why would I have thought of it? I never had one growing up. Of course you never had one growing up. What? You were never allowed to eat sugar, flour, dairy, or anything that produces joy and happiness. This is what I live with. And I live with someone who doesn't care. Our son isn't walking yet. You can't force him to walk. I'm helping him to walk. You just don't get it. Dragging him around by his arms isn't going to help him learn to walk. Uh, Okay, well, tell me what will help him since you have all the answers. Why do you always do that? I'm going to stop you. We're getting into bickering and this isn't productive. After this many years of marriage and having a new baby. And a dog. And both of his parents. Both of them. Things have gotten away from you. It happens. You've got to breathe. Remember you're on the same team. And devote some time to each other. Tracy Ellis Ross, welcome to Bullseye. Thank you so much for having me. We opened with this clip uh, from this season's arc that shook many of the viewers Mm. of the show, including me. Mm. Uh, It was a it inaugurated a four-episode arc. This episode is from the one that you directed called yeah. 53%. Mm-hmm. Given the emotional tension of that particular episode, what was it like to toggle between being the director <laughs> and calling the shots and having to be really grounded in that situation and then having to be in front of the camera, yeah. opening yourself up to these emotional vulnerabilities? Um, in hindsight... It was a bit Herculean. And in the preparatory phase, I had a lot of fear. But I have learned through my career, which is wrought with fear and fearful circumstances, that uh, my best armor against being afraid is being prepared. But the actual experience of it was quite joyful. I, I love having a lot on my plate. I loved playing around with and telling a story through more than just the acting part of it to be able to map out a story arc uh, from the outside perspective and to find that thread, that tone um, that was going to wave through the whole thing. And But I'm not going to lie, it was uh, the most difficult part of it was the fact that I had no interest in dealing with my hair and makeup. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> and I learned that as a director and when I'm thinking, which I'm not usually aware of, I touch my face so much. I would sit in front of the monitor and like have my hand on my face and my fingers in my mouth and my just like and extreme smears all across. I mean, your it face. was they literally, and then they would have to spend time touching me up, which I found such to be such a waste of time. And you, as a director, you found it so deeply tedious. And you're like, I, we as, need this as shot. A person felt it so tedious. I was like, this is who cares if my eyebrows are straight? Get off me. Like, I just want to do it, you know. And so things took a little more time because of that. And I had to do playbacks and stuff. But I actually really, um, it is very similar to my process as an actor. I just had to think through the same thing that I do personally for everyone and for the full cast and sort of what is the larger story at play? Um, what is pulling you through the scene? Uh, where is it that we're trying to go? And how do we make sure that um, in each scene we are pulling that story apart so that it has somewhere to go and that it ends up landing somewhere? How did you feel then when you were first given these pages mm. and this when you were first <laughs> alerted to this episode arc where this relationship between um, Bo and Dre, which as one of the other side characters says is hashtag black excellence, right? <laughs> um, how did you feel when you came upon that development in the script and knew that you were going to have to play something that wasn't, that hadn't quite appeared in the realm of that relationship before? Um, you know, I was worried about it um, for a couple of different reasons, especially the challenge that, you know, that episode that I directed started the arc. So trying to figure out where we were orienting from you know, the, the core of our show is anchored by the love of this couple. We dive into lots of different areas and conflict and things, but they're always outside of the relationship. And so there's this home base of Dre and Bo. So my trepidation was, so then what is anchoring us? Like, then what is the thing we're holding on to? And can we trust that there is enough of a foundation underneath us if we're not it. Um, and I think we found it, but I think it was scary for even the audience to watch. Well, there were so many occasions in that four-episode arc where we thought, okay, it's going to resolve itself and now. It didn't. Yeah, like after Junior's yeah. valedictory speech or any of these situations. And we felt as an audience, mem mm. as audience members, like we were getting the rug consistently pulled yeah. from underneath You us. know, one of the things the writers did and talked about with us in advance that was really, uh, I thought, executed beautifully in, in what they actually wrote is that there was no one to blame. And part of what we were exploring is very in line with the DNA of our show. Um, it just happened to be coming from a place that we're not used to seeing it, where there's no actual answer or there's no actual person to point the finger at to blame. That what we were exploring was this idea that in a long-term relationship, there are sometimes you grow in different directions. Sometimes there's not a particular thing that sets something off, but then that schism gets wider and wider and wider, and you don't even know how it got that wide or how to get back close together. And and then somehow you're somewhere you didn't know you were going. That was a really interesting thing to explore, but it was not just as, but it was challenging as actors also, because 
It went on for so long. It went on for a long time, I can imagine, <laughs> in a very protracted uh, production schedule and not just the, you know, couple of hours that we witnessed it. No, I mean, you know, we do a good 14-hour day, five days a week. Mm-hmm. And um, so I enjoy the fact that we get to giggle through our work. You'll hear the rest of Karen Tongson's interview with Tracy Ellis Ross when we return from a short break. Stay with us. Still to come, Tracy tells Karen about what it was like to grow up in a New York apartment when your mom is Diana Ross, one of the most famous singers ever. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for this NPR podcast and the following message come from Babbel, a language program that quickly teaches real-life conversations in a new language. Choose from Spanish, French, Italian, German, and more. Babbel's 10- to 15-minute lessons use interactive dialogues and speech recognition technology to get you speaking your new language correctly and confidently. Try Babbel for free by downloading the app or going to Babbel, B-A-B-B-E-L dot com. As soon as you wake up, you need the latest. That's why Up First is here. It's NPR's morning news podcast. In just 10 minutes or so, you can start your day informed. Listen to Up First on the NPR One app or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, I'm Oliver Wong, DJ, scholar, and journalist. And I'm Morgan Rhodes, music supervisor and stiletto devotee. And we host Heat Rocks, a podcast where we invite our favorite musicians, writers, and scholars to talk about the albums that have changed their lives. Morgan, what exactly is a heat rock? It's a record that's like hot fire, combustible. Basically, just a really, really good album. We've taken a deep dive into Nigerian funk from the 70s. He kind of had like a bad reputation in in town as just being like a sketchy dude. (laughs) And he was just making music that for thousands of miles around him, he was the only person doing anything like that. 1980s teen comedy soundtracks. This soundtrack always felt the same to me as like when I would find a a great blazer at a thrift store that I could, I was like, oh, this is going to be me now. We've talked about Prince, Boys to Men, Kendrick Lamar, and everything in between. Heat Rocks, every Thursday here on Maximum Fun. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. If you're just joining us, it's a conversation between Karen Tongson, the co-host of Pop Rocket, and Tracy Ellis Ross, the Emmy-nominated star of Blackish. One of the things that I've enjoyed most that you've done recently beyond Blackish is just that brief 73 questions you answered oh. on Vogue. <laughs> Thank you. And one of the things that you said actually was that, you know, one of the reasons you <laughs> like portraying Bo is that you like to redefine what it's like to be a joyful black yeah. woman. Yeah. And so um, I don't know. Maybe can we, we play a little clip of that 73 questions? Sure. Because I have That's a, so funny. Because I think that. Like many listeners, I have a couple of follow-ups from some of the oh, things give him, that give you him. said. Oh, give them, give them. Yeah, let's play so, it. I, I'm so curious. Sure. Hey. Tracy Ellis Ross. Thanks for fitting me into an insanely busy schedule to do oh, 73 questions. It is my pleasure. Please come in. Okay. So, on a scale of 1 to 10, mm-hmm. how excited are you about life right now? Oh, I am at like a 10 or 11 right now. Can you describe Los Angeles in three words for me? Sunny. Work, healthy. Can you describe yourself in a hashtag? Joyful. Can you describe your home? Uh, Warm, safe, fun. And beautiful. What's the theme of this room? (laughs) I don't know that there's a theme in here, but it's blue. Come on, let's go sit on the blue couch. (laughs) 
Okay. If you could do a love scene with anyone, who would it be? Oh. Well, I'm going to make it a threesome. And Rihanna and James Dean. And me, of course. <laughs> if your life was a musical, what would the marquee say? Hello, Dolly. Hello, Tracy. Yes, hello, Tracy. As in, it would be called Hello, Tracy. <laughs> I love that. I mean, first of all, uh, the, the threesome with Rihanna and James, the love scene. Yes, I'm sorry. Yes, it, it was explicitly a love scene, but you went threesome. I, I sure did. That. Um, <laughs> and, and I went there pretty quickly. You went there really quickly. I didn't quickly. even bonder long. Although, frankly, the fact that you made one of them be a dead person like could keep people from speculating a lot. It it could, or it could just tell you which one I wanted to be with. <laughs> <I don't know. laughs> yeah. uh, but, also, but also the the little last bit of that clip where you get into your hello, Tracy. Yeah. Uh, you know, one of the <clears> things <throat> that I enjoy about the way you move through the world is actually your theatricality. <laughs> Thank you. you. Know, it's a, and, and and I think that you know we know you as a TV star, mm-hmm. a fashion icon, but you're a theater dork. I, I'm a theater dork. I well, I'm a a connoisseur of fun and joy. Yeah, because I don't know if I would use the word theatrical or free. You know, in the history of the black experience, there understandably and justifiably uh, is a ton of struggle and um, pain and hurt. Um. And, you know, I actually just wrote this on my Instagram account today um, that we as black women and as people of color of black and black and brown and um, people of color in general, we are deserving of safety and joy, mm-hmm. a combination of both, which in uh, because of um, a lot of experiences, uh, there's been no room for joy. There's been a lot of survival involved. Um and so there's something really extraordinary about watching a black woman or a woman on television um, played through the face and beingness of a black woman that um, is thriving and joyful along with being all those other things. Mm-hmm. And the, that has the, the capacity to countervail all of that difficulty, all of that struggle with that joy. With it with at love, the same time. Right? Yeah, with joy and love. And, and we, we don't get a chance to see enough of that. And, and yet my eyes and my heart see a lot of it in my own life as I look around at um, the people that I know and the friends. There is both. But being able to bring that to a larger platform as we expand our idea of what humanity looks like. Um, It's been limited in how it is expressed through a lot of our entertainment. Another one of the figures who you bring up in that 73 questions uh, that you enjoy the works of the great woman of color feminist, uh, writer, philosopher, Mm -hmm. Audre Lorde. Uh, When did you first come across her works and how did you did you read it at Brown? Did you? It's an what, interesting story that I think is unexpected. I um, have only leaned into feminist literature um, in my adult life. Uh, it was not what I was sort of experiencing and trafficking in in college. Mm-hmm. Um, my social activism has actually I've always been participatory um, and showing up, but my social activism has only um, the volume has only turned up uh, as in my adult life. And I was reading, I had read Rebecca Traster's All the Single Ladies, hmm. um, which was truly a, a, a life pivoting read for me um, because I felt that there 
are so few stories on the wallpaper of our lives of different versions and incarnations of what it looks like to be a fulfilled and happy adult woman in life. The whole married and kids thing is still so attached to that um, experience in a way that I find puzzling. And so when I read Rebecca Tracer's book, I was so moved by all these different stories and and sort of um, chronicling of all this different experience. And that took me into a really good rabbit hole of a lot of feminist literature. But I was in the middle of reading Rebecca Solnit's um, The Mother of All Questions. And it dawned on me that the books that I had been reading were all of white feminists. And that my experience was not being uh, – that I was identifying wholeheartedly, but I also was not quite hearing the fullness of my own experience and things that I know to be true. Um, and so I went to Google and I literally typed in top 10 black feminist books. Wow. Yes. And that's, and, and that's how you got to Audre Lorde. And it's not- Audre Lorde, yes, came up on every list. Yeah. And um, Sister Outsider is what I picked up. Um, It is a reference book for me almost all the time. I go back to my highlighted passages. I have transcribed into my phone in notes numerous passages from all different parts of the book that I reference and go back to at all times. And to a certain extent, it's become a her words have become a life raft for me in helping to articulate things that um, I don't always have the language for. And somehow, all those years ago, she was right on course with what we are still in now. So um, I want to talk a little bit more about your earlier life, because I think one of the things that we have in common is that I grew up in a family of musicians, Mm -hmm. and I was on the road a lot. My Mm -hmm. mom was a singer. Mm -hmm. And so give me a picture of what it was like to be a kid, you know, with a mom who sang. (laughs) And were you on the road with them or were you left with extended family or did you, you know, go to school? Um, well, my mom did this very particular and special thing where she would never leave for longer than a week. Mm-hmm. And she recorded uh, at night while we were sleeping. So she always put us to bed and woke us up in the morning and sat and had breakfast with us. She's a really good waker-upper. <laughs> She's a particularly good waker-upper. She would. She was the most gentle. Like she would first come in and lift the sh- like open the shades. And me and my sisters all shared a room. So she would open the shades, and then she would gently turn on some music. Wow. And then she would come back again five minutes later, and she would lean in the door and say in that beautiful voice of my mom's, "Are you going to wake up, girls?" Oh, it's the best. Did you ever say no? (laughs) Often. Often. Like, I begged if I could get dressed under the covers. Um, So my mom has a very deep and wide heart. um, And we are and always have been her priority. So we did go on the road. I experienced all of that. But those things happened during our summer vacations or um, our Christmas breaks. Um, But mostly our life was pretty... I don't know, regular in that, um, you know, my mom was very present. Single mom, raised by a single mom. My grandma, when she was alive, stayed with us um, often. I remember my grandma would always come and reorganize all the drawers, and I'm a very organized person and had things <laughs> so you're already organized. Them. Oh, yes, as a young girl, I was. I was very specific, and my grandmother would, like, reorganize everything, and it would really upset me, and I would call my mom, who was, like, on tour, wherever she was, like, crying hysterically, like, <laughs> 
mommy is cheating. And my mom said, I don't care. I don't care. I don't care. That's my mother. You treat her with respect and love. Going back to the times when you say you were on tour in the summer times, mm-hmm. and uh, I, I think I've, I've read certain stories that you told about being called on stage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Called on mom. stage, hiding in the quick change booth, helping my mom in the quick change booth. You know, Carol Burnett coming onto stage in sparkly gowns and like knowing my mom did that too. And what I saw, if in hindsight and as an adult I could articulate it, is that I saw a woman in her full glory with agency and a ton of joy. And that's what drew me in. You know, I I saw a, a woman who was um, just in her full self. And I was like, I want that. <laughs> I'll take that. And I do think I'm, I call myself a performer before I'm an actor. Um, I'm a performer, actor, you know, um, activist, like, but performer, I think, there's a, a a desire to share what is inside me um, in a way that lends itself to performance and 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 different and different expressions mm-hmm, of that, right? Mm-hmm. Whether or not it's also being in a sequin dress in the desert, yeah. in a Drake video or something. Oh yes, I mean this will work for me too. <laughs> um, and so you had the occasion then to watch a lot of different things being produced and yeah. happening. But I know that you had a special relationship to television, oh, even God, yeah. as a kid. Carol Burnett. And, yeah, yeah, so how, I mean, how did you become a, a viewer and not just a participant in television later on in your life? Um, I mean, I just, I mean, it's funny, because if I look at the, the favorite shows I had growing up, I go, oh, well, duh, of course this is who I became. <laughs> of course I'm like an outspoken, strong, free, glamorous lady. Like, <laughs> duh. Um, Cagney and Lacey, um, Kate and Allie, uh, Charlie's Angel, one, Charlie's Angel's Wonder Woman, Bionic Woman, Carol Burnett, Lucille Ball, uh, Lily Tomlin. I mean, like, if you look at the 70s, it was a heyday to a certain extent in what I drew from these characters. Were any of those women of color? No. Um, were they with living within their own constraints in those stories? Yes. Um mm-hmm. So, but yet, I I took something from it. I took what I could there and built on that. Um, I mean, there's extraordinary women on television now. I'm in awe of some of the work that's happening. Like, Killing Eve blew my mind. Um, But there's so many examples of that right now. I just feel like they're all over the place. And the women who are in those lead positions in telling those stories have a different kind of freedom in them than there was in the 70s or whatever that is. But, you know, I think we're evolving. I really hope so. It was such a pleasure to have you here today, Tracy Ellis Ross. Thank you for coming. Thank you so much. This was a lovely conversation. Tracy Ellis Ross, interviewed by Karen Tongson. You can stream or buy all four seasons of Blackish on a bunch of different platforms right now. Like we said before, Tracy is up for the Outstanding Lead Actress in a Comedy Series Emmy at the Emmy Awards this year. You want to see if she'll win it? Tune in September 17th. And if you're as impressed by Karen as I am, she is one of the brilliant panelists on our sister show, Pop Rocket. It is like a conversational version of this show. Instead of talking to artists, they talk amongst themselves. Uh, Karen is one of our brilliant panelists, and uh, she brings so much insight to the conversation from her academic background and just from being a cool, funny lady. Uh, You can find Pop Rocket in your favorite podcast app. 
Just search for Pop Rocket. We're getting close to the end of this week's Bullseye, but before we go, a recommendation. The segment's called The Outshot. So there are different kinds of laughter. You laugh at a joke. You laugh in relief when you're startled. You laugh to reinforce a social bond. The other day I was in my cabin and I was reading, and I found myself laughing out loud at, I mean, I guess just at audacity. I think when you're young, you should be a lot with yourself and your sufferings. Then one day you get out where the sun shines and the rain rains and the snow snows and it all comes together. It came together for me in New York during the Roaring Twenties. I was going to make myself the most popular girl in the world. That's Diana Vreeland from her autobiography, D.V., Or actually, it's an actor reading from the transcripts of the interviews she did that made up her autobiography from a documentary that was based on that autobiography. But anyway, the point is the audacity. But when it comes to Diana Vreeland, the audacity carries the day. You could say that Vreeland was a fashion editor. That certainly undersells her. She was the fashion editor. She was a transformational figure who carried women's style from the Edwardian to the modern. She convinced the world to wear blue jeans and bikinis. She ran Harper's Bazaar and then Vogue and changed them both forever. She lived clear through the 80s, leaving a trail of astonished onlookers behind her. She was born in Paris in 1903, and like most parts of her life, she has an amazing quote about that. Where do I begin? The first thing to do, my love, is arrange to be born in Paris. After that, everything follows quite naturally. She grew up just this side of rich and stayed just this side of rich throughout her life. A sort of second-tier aristocracy with coming-out seasons and baronesses hanging around and trips from London to Paris to visit Chanel and get some clothes made. And horses, of course. Plenty of horses. I mean, there was a great deal of, I suppose, what we call decadence. But, of course, I didn't see any of that. I only saw the horses. It's enough to make you resent her if she wasn't so madly charming. The autobiography is dizzy and hilarious and as bright as the red walls in her townhouse in New York. It feels like you're listening to the most amazing dinner guest ever holding court. And that's because you are. It's Vreeland's side of conversations with George Plimpton, transcribed and buffed up a little and left out in the sun to dazzle. In her work and in the book, she argues again and again for the aesthetic, not because of the value of craftsmanship or artisanship or even as a tribute to the wonder of God, none of the serious, sober-minded reasons to appreciate beauty, but because the aesthetic, the exciting, the beautiful, the social, they're what makes life worthwhile. All of a sudden, reading the book, The Search for Red Nail Lacquer and the Man Who Made the Strongest and the Deepest and the Reddest Red Nail Lacquer and His Travels Across Continents and His Disappearance all kind of blend together into something like, something like a coherent worldview. You believe that picking out the things and thoughts that sparkle and dazzle and take the breath away is a pursuit worth pursuing. 
At the same time mannequins became personalities in the 60s, personalities became mannequins. Ravishing personalities are the most riveting things in the world. Conversation, people's interests, the atmosphere that they create around them, these are the only things worth putting in any issue. You honestly wonder, reading the book, what she thought of her kids. I mean, she had some. They're barely mentioned. She adored her husband, though you don't get much sense of why. She seems completely disinterested in things like her paycheck or the circulation of her magazines or, for that matter, class or social justice or politics. I mean, the Duke and Duchess of Windsor were as aesthetically brilliant as she was, so great. They're wonderful. Jackie Onassis, same thing. Whoever else, not so much. Diana is focused on her next nightgown fitting. And by the way, five. She had five fittings for each nightgown. But it doesn't feel like a rejection of whatever, of of practical things, so much as an embrace of the value of something else. Vreeland's commitment to beauty in clothing and art and conversation and red fingernail lacquer is so sincere and brilliant that you are swept up into it. And while you're on the ride, only beauty matters. It's what Diana Vreeland was meant to do, and she did it brilliantly. We should all be so blessed to see the beauty in the world that clearly. There's only one very good life, and that's the life that you know you want and you make it yourself. That's my outshot. That's all for this week's Bullseye. Bullseye is recorded at MaximumFun.org headquarters, overlooking MacArthur Park in beautiful Los Angeles, California, where Wilshire Boulevard hosted the annual Salvadoran Feria Agostina celebration this past weekend, and it was an extravaganza. It is every year live music and food and a carnival ride called simply Hustler. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. He had help from Casey O'Brien. Production fellows at MaximumFun.org are Jesus Ambrosio and Shayna Deloria. Our senior producer is Laura Swisher. Our interstitial music was provided to us by DJW, a.k.a. Dan Wally. Our theme song was recorded by The Go Team. Our thanks to them and to their label, Memphis Industries, for letting us use that great band. If you haven't checked them out, please check out the Go Team. If you'd like to hear any of our past shows, we have over 15 15 years worth of interviews available for free. You can find them all at MaximumFun.org. We're also on Facebook, on Twitter, on YouTube. Just search for Bullseye with Jesse Thorne or uh, find our last five or six years worth of shows for free in your favorite podcast software. And I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. 